Welcome to the Modern Law Revolution podcast, sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association. This is the podcast that features the successful and happy lawyers who are changing the practice of law in Colorado. I'm your co-host, J.P. Box. I'm a lawyer turned entrepreneur, consultant, and author. And for one more month, have the pleasure of serving as the current chair of the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative. So, um, and I am the co-host, Erica Holmes, uh, founder of EL Holmes Legal Solutions, a modern law practice focusing on family law and attorney ethics and regulation. And I am the inaugural chair of the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative. So if you had joined us um, for our first few episodes, you've heard us talk a lot about um, how modern representation is a win-win for clients and their lawyers. Well, today we are going to take it a step further and be a win-win-win because modern representation is also amazing, not only amazing for clients and lawyers, but also for the legal community. And to represent our legal community and the vision therefore, or thereof, um, we have four amazing panelists with us today. We have Justice Marquez, Jessica Brown, Eric Bono, and Sarah Scott. And our episode today goes a little longer than some of our previous ones, but it's for a good reason. We have a lot of very uh, interesting, important items to discuss. And with, as Erica pointed out, we have four fabulous panelists today. It's a lot of, um, there's a lot for us to cover and there's a lot of voices that we didn't want to trim from this podcast. So this is a longer discussion, but hopefully it'll feel like it flew by because it did for us. And this, this was really brought upon you know, about a month and a half ago as all of us took a very unexpected pause in our lives. Uh, very quickly with the pandemic, our day-to-day lives changed. And with that, there was a whole host uh, for many people of serious challenges financially, from a health standpoint, emotionally. Um, but what we've tried to do with the series is also look at this time period as a moment of reflection as well and to really create a vision for what we want our lives to look like as professionals, as members of the community, how we interact with our clients. And so today is our focus is gonna be on the community aspect of it, my favorite topic uh, of this four part series. And as part of being a time of reflection, we also are hoping this is a time for uh, people to see the it is an opportunity. Um, and so that's why we are including this, calling it a vision series. So uh, what is the vision for yourself um, and what you want your professional and personal lives to look like? Um, what's the vision for your clients? Who do you want to serve and uh, how do you want to serve them? And then um, as JP said, today is our focus on the legal community and what is the vision for the future? You know, we started this to address uh, what life was going to look like in a post-pandemic world, uh, but current events with the protests going on across the U.S., um, we also want to add that additional layer today in our focus. So, JP, do you want to get a little bit deeper into that? Yeah. So, we've, you know, I would say the past week or so, community has been at the forefront of all of our minds for a very different reason, you know, following the violent death of George Floyd and the ensuing protests that have declared loudly and clearly Black Lives Matter. We have all been part of a process of where do we fit in as individuals in terms of the work that we have to do to create an anti-racist society that emerges from this. 
and what do we want our community to look like as we begin to really address uh, a long overdue period of reckoning with the history of racial violence and systemic oppression that exists within our country. And so I think it's important as we have this discussion about what the legal community looks like to be very intentional about how we, you know, during this time of reflection, as you noted, Erica, to really think about how do we rebuild this community to be a fairer, more just, more righteous community moving forward. And so with that, I just want to very briefly highlight a few aspects of community that are important to me based upon uh, what I do professionally. As you know, Erica, when I start talking about millennials, I can talk for hours and hours. Today, I'm going to be very short um, because I really want to get to our all-star panelists to hear their vision for our community. And so the lens that I look through a lot of this is uh, the millennial perspective. During you know, part of my day job, I help law firms hopefully come up with solutions to have the three big generations, millennials, Gen Xers, and boomers, work together harmoniously and productively, recognizing that the millennial generation, which is now the largest generation practicing law, has caused a lot of stress points within our legal community. And so how do we really pivot in a productive direction where we're all working together harmoniously? And just briefly wanna highlight a few of the challenges that we have within our community from a generational standpoint. Just last year, um, Above the Law with Major Lindsay in Africa released a study that surprised even me as I you know, do this on a day-to-day -day basis, where only 40% of millennial associates nationwide have partnership aspirations, and only 27% want to be a partner at their current firm. And with that, roughly half of all millennial associates believe the law firm business model is quote-unquote fundamentally broken. And so from the largest generation practicing law, you have this very serious buy-in problem. And when you start peeling back the layers, what you see time and time again from young lawyers, but I would also say from Gen Xers and boomers as well, is the pain point really is the community that needs to be changed, that needs to be brought up to speed to what many of us are looking for from the workplace. And so you look at study after study, the social aspects of work for millennials are oftentimes the most important factor in terms of keeping them tethered to a career or to a firm, oftentimes even more so than compensation. And again, this is something that plagues our profession top to bottom. UCLA two years ago deemed the law the loneliest profession in the U.S., that we outpace other professions with comments like, I feel as if I have nobody to talk to. I feel as if nobody truly understands me. And from my perspective, we are a profession built upon the promise of partnership. And that you know, certainly includes the financial rewards of partnership, but also the way we become advocates for each other, the way we support each other, and really create a social center within our profession as well. And so the three things that are forefront of my mind right now for how do we address these challenges and build that vibrant, productive legal community that we all want is one, um, embracing the notion that work is, yes, it's a workplace, but it's also a social center, really embracing the relationships we can build with our colleagues. Two is something that we've all had to do the past month and a half, and that is become comfortable in a blended environment. So moving away from work-life balance to work-life blend, where we are figuring out 
where and when can I be most productive outside the strict confines of an individual office or outside of the standard working hours. And third, really is tying it back to what Eric and I uh, addressed early on here, which is we need to become a multiracial, a multi-gender community that elevates voices and that has a stronger community moving forward to have more people in our profession who don't just look like me, but who bring other perspectives and really create a strong community from that base. So with that, I want to jump into our amazing guests. Yes, um, and speaking of perspectives, we have an amazing panel of guests today um, to bring us a multitude of perspectives. Um, we've got the judicial perspective, uh, more the private sector perspective, the law school perspective, and also um, diversity and inclusiveness. So we'll start off by introducing Justice Marquez, who is a Supreme, uh, Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court since 2010. And before joining the court. She served as Deputy Attorney General at the Colorado Attorney General's Office. Um, she also served as the Assistant Solicitor General and as Assistant Attorney General in both the Public Officials Unit and the Criminal Appellate Section. And before even that, um, she did private practice doing general commercial litigation and employment law at Holmes, Robert, and Owens, and currently is chair of the Colorado Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being, which is considering ways to improve the well-being of lawyers, judges, and law students. So welcome, Justice Marquez. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excited to have you here. Our uh, second guest to introduce is Jessica Brown. She is the president-elect of the Colorado Bar Association and a partner in the Denver office of Gibson Dunn. She's a member of her firm's labor and employment and white-collar criminal defense and investigations practice groups. Before joining Gibson Dunn in January 1995, she clerked for the Honorable Jim R. Kerrigan of the United States District Court for the District of Colorado. Since joining the firm, Jessica has been a frequent author and lecturer on employment, investigation, privacy, gender, diversity, and leadership issues. She is also a past president of the Colorado Women's Bar Association and past chair of the Legal Aid Foundation Board of Trustees. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me, JP. Uh, our third uh, amazing panelist to introduce here is Eric Bono. He is the Assistant Dean for Career Opportunities at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Dean Bono worked at the University of Colorado Law School from 06 to 2011, where he served as the Director for the Private Sector and Judicial Clerkships in Colorado Law's Office of Career Development. Before that, he practiced general litig litigation and employment law in Denver at the law firms of Holmes, Roberts, and Owen, and Baird and Kibioski. Prior to law school, Dean Bono was an admissions counselor at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio, an assistant director of admissions at Denison University. Eric currently serves on the board for the National Association of Law Placement and is a past member of the Center for, past board member of the Center for Legal Inclusiveness. And we must include a past member of the Modern Law Practice Initiative. Welcome, Eric. It's good to be with you. Thank you, JP. Thank you, Erica. 
Absolutely. We're so thrilled to have you here. Um, and last but not least, um, we have Sarah Scott, who is the brand new CEO of the Center for Legal Inclusiveness. Um, before that, she was in private practice for over 15 years. Um, her career highlights include time at the Washington, D.C. Children's Law Center, as well as private practicing for private practice focusing on family law and more specifically same-sex family cases. Uh, before attending law school, Sarah was one of the first students to earn her bachelor's degree in comparative studies in race and race and ethnicity from Stanford University. And most recently, she is a founding board member of Legal Entrepreneurs for Justice and is was recently appointed a commissioner to the Uniform Law Commission by State Senator Garcia. So good to have you, Sarah. Thanks so much, happy to be here. So now that we have established this amazing panel of guests, let's actually hear from them. Um, so let's start off with um, what do you consider to be markers of a vibrant community? Um, and where were we um, pre-pandemic with those markers? And um, frankly, where were we falling a bit short? Sure. Uh, if I may, I'd like to start uh, by talking a little bit about what I have seen that makes our legal community, uh, particularly in Colorado, but also throughout the U.S., as uh, particularly vibrant. But then I would like to address, if I could, uh, some ways in which I think we may fall short um, and some opportunities that we may be able to address. Um, first of all, what's great already uh, one, of the, one of the great things about my job at the Sturm College of Law is it puts me in places where I get to maintain a very active connection to the terrific people in our legal community, and including the panelists with us today. And, and I think the community really meets the mark uh, through collegiality, uh, particularly here in our Colorado professional community, whether that's through the Bar Association, the Specialty Bars, Colorado Lawyers Committee, Metro Volunteer Lawyers, Inns of Court, and of course the Modern Law Practice Initiative of the Colorado Bar, the places where we come together as a community are the places where I think we meet the mark. We also thrive as a legal community in that I think by and large we serve our current clients uh, very well, whether it's that they need a will or they need to adopt children, pursue litigation, launch a business, what have you. Uh, we do a good job of serving the clients that we're currently serving. But that leads me to where I think we may fall short. Uh, and to me, that all boils down to the legal profession's current inability to serve all facets of our society. For example, we do a great job I think of serving the business community, but we are not necessarily fully reaching or even at all reaching low and middle income citizens anywhere close to where we could be and where we should be. Just to give a few examples, uh, legal aid is underfunded. We don't have enough private practice lawyers providing affordable legal services to lower and middle income clients. And I understand that study after study shows that the criminal justice system treats black and brown people unfavorably as compared to similarly situated white people. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out right now in our society. We've got huge swaths of the American people telling us that our system doesn't serve them well. 
I have more to say, but I'll stop there because I know you want to hear from the rest of the panelists. So Jessica, um, could you fill us in with the CPA's perspective, where the community has been and where it might have been falling short? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to give my personal perspective on that as president-elect of the Colorado Bar Association. When I think about a vibrant community, I think about three markers. Um, I'm sure there are others, but the ones that come to mind for me are engagement, diversity, and discourse. Um, and with regard to engagement, I mean, I think we certainly do that pretty well at the CBA and with all the other uh, diversity bar associations and other groups in our community. Um, for those who want them, there are a lot of opportunities for engagement. The CBA, for example, has almost 30 sections, each of which functions like a mini bar association. Uh, we also have committees, smaller groups that collaborate and really get to know one another. Um, again, a number of amazing and dynamic diversity bars who do a phenomenal job of engaging their members um, and, you know, other worthwhile organizations, some of which have been mentioned already, Inns of Court, uh, as well as like CJI, uh, Colorado Trial, Trial Lawyers Association. There's so many ways to engage. Uh, now we need to think about how to you know, engage uh, members of these various organizations remotely and virtually. Um, it's a little bit harder. Uh, Zoom does offer a lot of ways to engage um, that most of us probably haven't quite gotten used to. Um, breakout rooms for discussion and networking, post-it notes, you know, there are a lot of um, features that the bars are working at getting really savvy at using. Uh, and I think we need to provide leadership and training around it too, so that we don't lose that engagement and start to become more isolated from one another. With regard to diversity, I really mean that in every sense of the word, geographic, political, as well as racial, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, and ethnic diversity, and all the other differences that allow us to bring diverse perspectives to every issue. Blending diverse perspectives leads to debate and sometimes disagreement, but the result, um, and I think this is proven to be the case, the result is stronger, more creative, and better work product decision makings and outcomes. So, you know, I think we're getting better at this as a community, um, maybe especially with regard to gender. When I started in big law, only about 13% of equity partners were female, and now we're up a little bit above 20%, but we obviously still have a very long way to go. Uh, after all, 50% of law students and new associates are women and have been for a long time. Um, and in addition, minority women remain the most poorly represented group in big law partnerships. Obviously, recent events have brought the issue of racial inequities to the fore. The murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and other Black men and women have triggered an outpouring of outrage over racial inequality that's been building for decades. Uh, many members of our legal community are outraged by the inequality that persists in our communities, including in our workplaces, as well as the justice system. And now is the time for collective action. As lawyers, we can and should take the lead in the fight for racial equality through pro bono efforts, charitable, give, charitable giving, and community involvement, such as through partnering with various nonprofit organizations to tackle these issues in a larger, more systemic way. As lawyers have in other important areas, such as LGBTQ rights, for example, in the Me Too movement, lawyers can and should play a meaningful role in changing the world for the better and making good on the promise of equal justice for all. Obviously, the bar can help facilitate those connections, and I believe we will be working on those efforts um, as we you know, move on into our next year here. It starts July 1st. The issue of diversity is one that we have been working on and need to pay even closer attention to as we move forward and will 
Finally, as I mentioned, discourse. Um, I think this is something our community does well and will continue to do. I think sharing of ideas and information is something that, um, again, the bar associations can facilitate. And this podcast is a great example. Well, thank you, Jessica. Um, let's hear from Sarah on her perspective for the markers of a vibrant community, where, you know, the snapshot of where our legal community is and areas that we really need to focus in on and address. Sure. So... When I think of a vibrant community, especially a vibrant legal community, I think of a place where lawyers feel a sense of belonging, engagement, value, and that word that I love so much, inclusiveness. We need to make sure that our law firms and our other legal institutions where lawyers are practicing feel a sense of belonging and engagement. And the only way to really do that is to make sure that they feel included and are part of the conversation. Diversity only goes so far. Diversity offers a seat at the table, whereas inclusiveness and inclusivity really gives people an opportunity to speak and feel valued with respect to that which they are saying. Um, just what my colleague Jessica said, we know for sure that diversity increases the bottom line, that with diversity and differing voices in the room, that we get better outcomes, we get better solutions for our clients. However, if we have diverse voices in the room who don't feel as if they can speak up and who feel stepped over and who feel like they're cut off during conversations and we don't have managers and law firms at every level working on diversity and inclusiveness issues every single day and how to do better at making sure that their team members are feeling a sense of inclusivity, then it's not gonna do anything for us, it's not gonna matter. And we're just gonna be sort of faced with this facade of yes, we have diverse lawyers, but it doesn't matter. And you know, looking forward where we are sure to see, or there's projections of cuts in the legal realm on the heels of COVID-19, we have to sort of take a moment and pause and look at what happened in 2008 and 2009 with the financial collapse there, we know that diverse lawyers were the first ones to be cut. And we also know that that was in direct conflict with a lot of the law firm's values. And what happened as a result is that the law firms, some of them have never fully recovered. They have never recovered their diverse teams. Now diversity candidates don't wanna work there and their bottom lines have been impacted as a result. I believe, so that's what I think about a vibrant sort of community and um, what we need to be thinking about. Um, where do we currently, currently fall short in every single realm? When we don't have a community where diversity and inclusiveness, inclusivity are the first things that we're all thinking about every single day, then our communities are gonna continue to fall short. We're going to continuously not meet the needs of our underserved populations. We're gonna continuously not volunteer for legal aid and other organizations that are specifically trained um, in terms of lawyers who serve those disadvantaged communities. We're gonna continually disappoint. We're gonna continually have underfunded um, public defender service offices and lawyers there who are completely burnt out. So I'll talk a little bit later about 
how this all ties in my view to um, all that's been going on in the country. And, you know, we are in a, we're, we're really in two pandemics now. We have the COVID-19 pandemic, but we also have the pandemic of police violence against black people. And, you know, both pandemics are insidious, both are silent until deadly, both are unruly, both are unhinged, both are unap unapologetic, both are widespread and both have a affected high percent of the population. And so we've, it's, it's, if we don't recognize both of these things as pandemics and both of them as sort of going on um, side by side today, then we are missing the point. And really we are de demonstrating that black lives don't matter. Thank you, Sarah, for just putting it right out there. This is definitely going to be a vibrant conversation. That's fantastic. So um, let's turn to um, Justice Marquez. And um, so in your opinion, what have we done right and what have we done wrong? I appreciate all of the wonderful and eloquent remarks made by my fellow panelists today. And uh, it's, it's hard to add much to that because I think they've covered a lot. Um, when I was asked to think about what the markers of a vibrant community are, what I came up with, I think echoes what others have said. It's one in which everyone feels welcome, where everyone feels engaged, and everyone feels supported. Um, and I think there are plenty of pockets of that in our Colorado legal community. As Jessica laid out, we have so many wonderful things going on with bar associations, specialty bars, and the synergies that we have growing between our specialty bar groups, inns of court, our Colorado mentory, uh, mentoring program, things like the Modern Law Practice Initiative, all of those things are very, very positive. But where we fall short is I don't think that that connection is uniform across our state. I think, uh, and I'm a Western sloper, right? I grew up in Grand Junction and Denver was the big, bad, evil universe, uh, center of the universe that just didn't care about the rest of the state. And I've been living here now for 20 years and I realized how quickly you can fall into the mindset that the world is here in Denver and the rest of the state doesn't exist. Um, and I don't think we do a very good job of roping in and connecting attorneys who are spread across the state. I agree with Eric that, and, and other panelists that we fall short on providing access to justice, uh, that we don't adequately serve low and middle income clients in ways that we can and should. And I also would add, I guess, that I don't, our bench, frankly, just does not look like the communities that we serve right now. We are, we fall very short on that marker. And that's a problem because I think that that disconnect has added to the perception that justice is not in fact equal for all. And uh, that perception or that lack of faith in the justice system can over time, and I think we're starting to see that, it literally undermines the rule of law itself. And so that's a very concerning development that I've seen in the last several years and something that I think needs to be addressed. Um, and I'll just, I'll stop there for now. Thank you, Justice Marquez. Um, I'm, I'm gonna come back to you for uh, our second question here because you, touched upon two really important um, 
items that are forefront in my mind. Um, you know, our second question here is, you know, trading in your gavel for a magic wand. If, you know, post pandemic, when we're all able to come back together and rejoin uh, each other in our offices and our courts, what do you want our legal community to look like? And in particular with two of the items that, that you just raised with, you know, the fact that we have a large state here and wanting to make sure that it's a vibrant legal community from north to south, from east to west, and also addressing that perception that justice may not be equal for all. And so, you know, if you have your magic wand, how do, how do we, you know, what does this legal community look like when we are able to meet those challenges that you laid out? I'd like to answer that question through the lens of the well task force, if I may. Um, the task force, which has been working for the last 18 months, uh, came together as a result of this 2016 study that showed how unhealthy we are as a legal profession and how lawyers have higher rates of alcohol and substance abuse and higher rates of mental health issues and sense of isolation. We're not a healthy bunch. Um, and the task force discussed stressors that contribute to that. And this was a very wide ranging discussion, but those stressors include that isolation that I'm talking about, uh, particularly isolation across a state as vast as ours. Um, it's, it also folds in things like lack of control over your schedule and the superhero complex that we all come to this profession with that I'm invincible, I can't show weakness. Um, and the pandemic here has exacerbated many of those stressors and shine, it has shined a spotlight on those concerns. It has, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it's profoundly impacted our day-to-day -day lives. It has upended the way we do business, uh, certainly upended the way we do business at the courts. Um, and if anything, and I think it has made the work of the task force and the urgency of that work even more apparent. The, this pandemic has impacted all of us very differently and it has exposed inequities in the way we come to the practice of law. Uh, for some, it has actually freed up all kinds of new time and given us opportunities to explore new hobbies and reinvest energy in places where we didn't have time before, and that's been a positive development. But for others, it's been financially devastating. It has uh, added all kinds of new stressors, including you know, how do I juggle clients and these court appearances while simultaneously homeschooling my kid on Zoom and everybody's competing for the same bandwidth in our home, you know, things like that. I think that, that this pandemic has made us appreciate community in ways that we previously took for granted and has made us, and layered then on top of that, the most, these most recent events, um, I think it has caused us to reflect uh, deeply on where we do fall short in these areas. I'll say this too, like we were about to release our final report just as the pandemic hit and we realized, uh-oh, wait a minute, this is pointless. I mean, the minute this hits, the minute we publish this, it's going to be obsolete. Everything we have in here is just, we could just rip up and kind of toss out the window. And we've, we, we paused for a couple of months and we've just now recently begun to come together and talk again about ways in which the pandemic uh, has impacted all of these issues and to focus on the, where these silver linings can be found, right? 
So, and this ties back in finally, my long-winded answer, but uh, to the vision question, what does it look like going forward? Some of these developments have been really positive. And some of these things that we've been forced to do, I think we've been now asking ourselves, why aren't we doing these things sooner? I'm hoping that we can carry forward some of these changes. Work from home is now a reality. Everyone's been forced and pushed into this. Um, and we're suddenly realizing, yeah, this actually works. I think you have a lot of employers who are very resistant to this and are realizing it can and does work. Um, I think our Zoom gatherings are obviously now a reality. And in the past, one of the things I've noticed, and, and this ties into the community piece, uh, we would only connect with those with whom we could physically gather in one space. So you had to deal with the time and aggravation of you know, fighting through rush hour traffic to get to that cocktail hour reception event kind of thing. And now Zoom has replaced all that. In some respects, it has freed us up to make new and different connections that we might not otherwise have made. So in terms of bridging that gap across the state, I think that this pandemic has allowed us to connect in new ways that we hadn't previously considered, and I'm hoping we can carry that forward. On the, on the bench diversity front, um, there were things afoot trying to address that, and I think that recent events have only heightened the urgency of that work as well. That's a very long-winded answer to your question, and I'll just leave it there. And we can. There are plenty of other folks that have things to say. So, amazing vision, um, as eloquently stated as always from you. Um, so, why don't we turn um, to Eric and um, what is um, the law school's um, vision for the legal community? Well, thank you. First of all, I would echo Justice Marcus's very important. Uh, and very insightful comments. Uh, for my part, speaking as a law school employee, and, and my office focuses in particular on the career development of our, of our students and the career outcomes for our students and alumni, um, I'm going to speak through that lens, if I may. Uh, but before I get there, I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about the broader legal community. Um, I'd like to see the legal community really seize this moment as an opportunity to expand the reach of our expertise. Um, we have an opportunity to think critically as a profession about who we're serving and also who we're leaving behind and to work toward a legal profession that really serves all prospective clients well. Of course, I want to emphasize that there are terrific people in the profession who are already working on that and already working on these issues, but we need to redouble our efforts as a profession and bring more lawyers into the fold. Um, and frankly, that starts in law schools, right? I mean, it starts in a few different ways. Number one, it starts with who do we bring in to law school and how do we bring them? Uh, one of the things that I think we may see arise out of the current conditions in our society is a renewed interest in law school from people who want to make change, people who want to get into the profession and make a difference for the better for our society, people who care about equality. Um, we may very well see that kind of um, change. And as law schools, and you know, this may be wishful thinking, but I'm going to put it out there, as law schools, rather than being hidebound to the 
these sort of metrics and rankings that we're all shooting for, uh, we ought to look at a broader range of people that we bring into law school and support once they get there. Um, we need to do a better job of bringing in people from historically underrepresented backgrounds in our profession. We need to do a better job of providing support for those students once they arrive. Um, and that's something that we can do at a very fundamental sort of level in the profession. The other thing we can do, and this is maybe more something that I can impact from through the lens of career, since that's what I work on uh, every day. Um, I'd like to think I've tried to do this, but it, the current situation has, has reminded me that we can and should do more. Uh, we need to do a better job at the law school level of identifying for our students different career paths where they can make a difference, serving people who are currently not being well served by the legal profession, um, in particular clients of sort of low and moderate incomes um, from which the Modern Law Practice Initiative grew. Um, this is a group of prospective clients that is huge in number. I mean, frankly, I think it's most people. Um, if you don't qualify for legal aid because your income is just a bit too high or maybe even quite a bit too high, that doesn't mean you can afford full law firm rates, right? That doesn't mean that you can fully access this profession. And we can and should do more at the law school level to amplify and, and, and expose our students to organizations like, say, Legal Entrepreneurs for Justice, which incubates um, modern law practices, for example, that really strive to serve clients in a different way, on, on a flat fee basis or a subscription basis or on a, on a scaled fee basis or on a limited scope basis, so that we can provide the, the legal services that are desperately needed. We've done some programming at the law school level. Uh, I would like to do more, and I invite Modern Law Practice Initiative to uh, give me a call, and we can talk about that. Where I'd really like to see it go is the classroom. I have less control over that, but I would like to see uh, Modern Law Practice embedded in everything that we do uh, at the law school level. I can go on and on. I'm passionate about this, but uh, we have some terrific panelists, and I want to make sure everyone can address this. Well, an MLPI is there for you, buddy. We, whenever you want us, we're, we're there to serve the law schools. So um, why don't we turn next to, um, go back to Ms. Scott, and um, what is your vision for the future in terms of um, diversity and inclusiveness? Sure. So one of the things that when we're all able to come back to work, um, I don't want us to step over the recent events and the deep pains from George Floyd and others. Um, I don't want the legal community to say, well, that was a time in, you know, that happened over the summer and it sort of happened with COVID and everything was crazy back then. Um, I want us to address this head on. And um, one of the things that Eric just mentioned, you know, we really need to double down on all of our efforts as it relates to access to justice, as it relates to diversity and inclusivity. And in fact, <laughs> our virtual summit this year, please mark your calendars, from August 10th to August 14th is called Doubling Down on Your DNI Efforts. And it is 
especially important for us to do that in light of the recent events and also in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. If we don't step over things and if we don't just start putting our heads down, because what happens I think with lawyers is we all get into our own cases, right? And we all start looking at all of our deadlines and then it becomes really um, overwhelming. And then we don't take the time, except when you're part of the modern law initiative and figure out how to do it a little bit differently to remember why it is that we're doing what we're doing in the first place. And so to have places like CLI when you're a member, and I encourage everybody to become members, we have differing rates for different groups, um, where you can step in and sort of see, you know, the forest for the trees and look at what initiatives we are trying to put together to really address things that are happening right now and um, push our members, our law firm members, and you know, our government members and all of our members to sort of do the same. So I don't know if that directly answers your question. I hope it does. Um, if you wanna ask a follow-up, go ahead, or we can just leave it there. No, I think you did a beautiful job answering the question, and we will turn it now to um, Jessica um, as incoming president. Um, what is your vision um, for the legal, legal community? So much can be said here, and just to address some of the concerns that have been raised, which I share completely, you know, with regard to Greater Colorado, Justice Mark has talked about that. Uh, the bar does have a greater Colorado task force in place currently that is really looking at ways to integrate members of our bar in greater Colorado um, and bring them into leadership and get them involved. And I think the pandemic has offered new ways to do that, um, as you mentioned, because we've all so good now at utilizing technology. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope and expect we will leverage technology to include people who are in greater Colorado or unable to attend in person for other reasons, such as childcare commitments, for example, uh, so that we can broaden participation. You know, getting really good at and comfortable with meeting virtually through this experience, we should be able to use that technology to our advantage in ways that we were attempting, but we just weren't very nimble at before. Uh, with regard to diversity on the bench, um, I know you're aware there is a coalition being headed by Judge Jackson and Patricia Jarzowski that is very focused on this issue with a number of leaders in our community. CLI, I believe, is represented and CJI is, is represented as well. And that's something that we're very focused on. And I think you're right, the urgency is only more apparent um, than it was even before when it was also quite clear. Um, access to justice. You know, we have a federal pro se clinic. We are, we've uh, formed a disaster legal services um, committee that is focused on, you know, who is in need now and how can we service them? And as I mentioned earlier, I'm hoping and expecting that we'll really focus on ways that we can be, um, you know, of assistance to you all, Sarah, and your efforts um, to, in, you know, affect permanent change with regard to racial equality. Um, you know, again, I, I, my law firm was um, at the forefront of some of those efforts to change um, our community for the better with regard to marriage equality. Uh, we were the firm that uh, handled the Prop 8 case in the U.S. Supreme Court. And Ted Olson of my firm um, knew that, hey, you have to change public opinion, and then you can really affect great change also through the legal system. So it has to be kind of a two-tiered approach. 
And I think if we take that approach to racial equality, it really feels to me like this time is different and that we are going to be able to affect permanent change. So all of that is part of my vision. Um, when it's actually safe to be together in person again, I hope we'll spend a lot of time interacting face-to-face -face for meetings, networking events, mentoring, pro bono matters, service projects, uh, and CLE programs, and maybe even appreciate that opportunity to be together in person, but again, ensure that we're including people via technology also, and always working that into our programs. Um, but the other big thing that I hope we can retain um, and I know Ryan Payton, our um, director of the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program, talks about this, and I share her uh, views about this. You know, through this pandemic and through this um, work from home revolution, um, not only have we seen that it can work, as Justice Marquez said, it can work very well, uh, we've really been able to get to see each other in new ways. Um, where people are juggling their various responsibilities and there's no hiding the fact that you have small children or pets who need your attention when they interrupt your Zoom meeting or the fact that you have to meet the worker coming to repair your dishwasher or look at your flood damage when those are, events are happening in the background of your urgent call. Um, there hasn't been any separation between work and life and I think that's mostly positive. Um, you know, just Seeing each other as human beings rather than as lawyers means we can understand and support each other's efforts to manage all the different things we have to do in addition to managing our jobs. And I hope no one feels compelled to hide these things going forward and that we can all be comfortable being our authentic selves in our workplaces. And if we can continue to recognize we're all just humans doing the best we can, it should go a long way toward improving lawyer health and well-being, um, as well as professionalism and civility in our profession. So I'll stop there. Well, and that leads us right into um, Justice Marquez. Did you want to add something to that? I did. And I uh, thank you for, for the opportunity to add uh, just a couple of points. I agree a thousand percent with Jessica's points about how the pandemic has uh, been kind of, you know, the necess necessity is the mother of invention. Here we are being forced to leverage this new technology and we're finding that it is providing us creative and wonderful new ways to bring in greater participation uh, to these conversations. So that's been wonderful. Um, and I also agree with this idea that the barriers between work and life that we have tried so hard to pretend and erect and, and, and maintain have all just sort of melted away. And we are being allowed to be our more authentic selves in that regard in the workspace. I'm meeting daily with my law clerks through Microsoft Teams and they see me wearing my gym clothes and you know, that's, that's just life now. Um, but I wanted to add a point about the bench diversity piece because yes, um, I wanted to, echo Jessica's remarks about the CBA-CJI Coalition on Bench Diversity and just add the point that uh, here at Judicial, we have added a position at uh, the Supreme Court Administrator's Office for a Judicial Outreach Coordinator. This was in conjunction with uh, legislation that was sponsored by Representative Leslie Herod to bring in an FTE at SCAO who could uh, help drum up interest in uh, judicial positions um, and kind of on, on two different fronts. Certainly there's a diversity focus to that, but also just to level the playing field for all interested applicants to the bench, to demystify the process, 
to explain this is how it works, is these are the steps you need to take, this is how to put together an application, these are available positions. Um, to go out into our more rural parts of the state and try to drum up interest in these positions. So all of that is uh, geared toward um, increasing the pipeline to the bench uh, with an eye toward increasing bench diversity. Thank you so much, Justice Marquez. It's such an important position that the judicial branch is taking an active role with. And I, I love the fact that this image of you and your law clerks and your gym clothes conversing with each other, doing the important work that needs to be done is just so perfect for us. Um, I want to change gears a bit and um, start with you, Jessica. Uh, Justice Marquez, earlier in our conversation today, talked about the superhero complex that many of us lawyers feel we need to embody. Um, and one of my favorite authors, social scientist, Brene Brown, talks a lot about the power of vulnerability and that to truly make human-to-human -human connections with each other, to build that authentic community, we first must embrace being vulnerable with each other. And so my question, uh, starting with you, Jessica, is how do we infuse our profession with a greater dose of vulnerability? How do we shed that superhero complex? Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge for the reason you mentioned. I think a lot of our clients, you know, think they want that tough and strong litigator, for example, and um, they certainly, they certainly, I don't think want to hear me talk about, you know, the times I've struggled in court or, um, you know, to be my best lawyer self. But I think at least within our organizations um, and in the community with colleagues and uh, mentees, we can and should be leaders and lead by example. So model authenticity and vulnerability. Be open about who you are, not by oversharing personal details, but by developing your own work style that really matches your personality. Um, I say share stories about your failures and your mistakes. I did just share one with my daughter over the weekend. We were talking about the importance of preparation. Um, and this made me realize I haven't told that particular, you know, that particular story around my office or shared it with my mentees, and I will now. I plan to do that. Um, so don't be afraid to admit when you're nervous, stressed, or scared. And if you model that behavior, others are likely to feel comfortable being open and honest as well. It, you know, and then it feels really good to be able to be your authentic self. And I think people will be happier in their jobs and in the profession. Uh, we should encourage people who seem like they have it all together to um, talk about times maybe what, that they've embarrassed themselves. And not just a long time ago when they were starting out in their careers, but recent struggles as well. Um, with the Colorado Women's Bar Association Foundation, we did a program, I don't know, in the last year or two called Failing Forward. And um, I invited Beth McCann and others to talk about, you know, struggles. I mean, these are, you know, these were people, panelists who, again, look like they probably never made any mistakes. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. And so having those honest discussions, I think, can really make a difference. For new lawyers, I would just note that it does take time to figure out who your authentic work self is, or it can. I was telling JP the other day that when I first started out in my career, I developed a professional voice that I used to uh, answer the phone. And in my first couple of years as a litigation associate, I really struggled with the conflict that seemed to be inherent in relationships with opposing counsel. Um, I don't like to be at odds with people and it wasn't comfortable for me to be unpleasant. 
um, or argue with others. And, you know, it's something I would never do outside the context of litigation. And I really didn't want to do it there either. I observed lawyers who seemed to actually relish those sorts of interactions. And I thought maybe litigation wasn't my thing. But then I decided to adopt like a kill them with kindness strategy that was so much better suited to my personality. Um, and I never took the bait when opposing counsel tried baiting me. And in fact, as opposing counsel got ruder, I got even nicer. And I, I think I was just trying to shame them into being polite to me and it worked. Um, and I started enjoying litigation a lot more after that. I also gravitated toward doing more advice and counseling work and eventually government investigations, which is a little less contentious than litigation because harder to be disrespectful to a regulator. You don't really have that option. But for the newer attorneys out there who are fortunate enough to have jobs, I'd just say, try to find what you truly enjoy doing and do what you enjoy in a way that always allows you to be your true self. Well, thank you, Jessica, for that inspiring message. Um, I know we have a couple other Brene Brown fans in the among the panelists as well. So let's go to Eric and then Sarah as well. So I think the current moment that we're living in does provide an opportunity for vulnerable leadership. Um, and I think it's powerful. As others have pointed out, you know, we can have a superhero complex. Uh, we are in sort of a profession that has traditionally lived by the motto of never let them see you sweat. Um, but I think that as, as Jessica has said, and just as Marcus has said, you know, in this current moment where we're all juggling our pets and our children and contractors and things going on around the house, we all do see each other a little bit more as just human beings, as Jessica said, trying to do the best job we can every day. And so I think that that stripping off that layer of separating work and home has hopefully allowed us all to see each other uh, a little bit more as as humans. And, and, and I guess what I'd like to just say about vulnerable leadership is uh, to illustrate it with just a couple of examples that I've seen. Um, one, just last week, I was on or listening to a roundtable uh, presented or co-presented by the NALP Foundation and, and NALP, the National Association for Law Placement. And the panelists were general counsels and partners in major firms. And every single one of them talked about how they are spending more time than ever in this moment talking and connecting to their team members around common everyday challenges that, that they are facing. And it struck me that if that form of leadership is working for them, it sure can work for the rest of us. Uh, so that was a powerful example um, to me of, of sort of the benefits of, of vulnerable leadership. Uh, the other thing, um, if I could just highlight uh, one of our fellow panelists, Justice Marcus, uh, I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak um, a number of times on panels individually, mostly the law students, but sometimes uh, to audiences of lawyers as well. And one of the things that always strikes me is that you share um, times that you felt insecure, times that you felt like you made a mistake and the ways in which you, you bounced back from those challenges. And, and I think that's why you connect with people. I think that's why uh, our students revere you. I think that's why you're at the top of so many speaker lists because people see you as a full, you know, empathetic human being who 
uh, has gotten to the position you're in by understanding other people and the challenges they face. So kudos to you. Uh, thank you, Eric. And, and um, yes, I mean, I, I do that very intentionally. Um, I think that I want to be approachable. And it's one of the reasons that um, going back to showing up in my gym clothes with, with my team, this year has been unlike any year in working with law clerks because of this pandemic. They see me in the house. They see my dog jumping on my lap. They see the doorbell ringing and the you know repair guy walking through the kitchen trying to fix the dishwasher and all of those things. Um, and it has brought us together. It has brought us together in ways that uh, I, I've always been close with my law clerks, but I think I'm especially close with this crew. Um, and, and there is value in showing your teams that you're a human being. Um, I think that that showing that bit of vulnerability allows them to um, connect with you. So, yeah. Uh, thanks, Eric. Well, thank you, Justice Marquez. Um, and Sarah, I'd love to hear your take on the power of vulnerability as well and as it relates to the community we want to build. Well, everybody just talked about um, this so beautifully, but I will just briefly say, you know, when we're talking about inclusiveness, we're talking about engagement, we're talking about connection, and to have any type of connection, you have to be vulnerable. So I just have a bunch of equal signs. <laughs> Inclusivity equals engagement equals connection equals vulnerability. And I think to your point, um, Eric, that is why Justice Marquez is at the top of every speaker's list. That is why, you know, her showing her vulnerable, vulnerable side, our real person side, that is also what it means to be inclusive, is for us to look at people as individuals and not as their status, right? Um, and so, yeah, we can absolutely bring more vulnerability into the legal community. And every time you do it, whether or not it's with the client, whether or not it's with your team members, whether or not it's with um, people who you're trying to recruit, every single time you'll, you do it, you will not feel bad. The outcome will be one of where you have greater connection. Well, thank you, Sarah. Um, I want to stick with you for a second here and circle back to um, something that you were speaking on earlier, which is we're in the midst of this nationwide reckoning with uh, our country's history of racial violence and systematic forms of oppression and discrimination. And it's first, it's, you know, it's in all of our minds right now. But my question is, how do we keep this on the stove right now? How do we, you know, when we reemerge, when we come back to our day-to-day -day lives and the day-to-day stresses reappear, how do we do the work of this important movement, not just right now, but this is the spark that keeps us passionate and dedicated to this mission moving forward? Well, first of all, I think that we have to make sure that we have a good, strong definition of the links. And as the CEO for the Center for Legal Inclusiveness, I want to convey that the murder of George Floyd and other Black people at the hands of reckless police officers may at first appear tangential to our mission, but it falls squarely within our work. Our work simply cannot begin until we appropriately pay homage to Mr. Flo Mr. Floyd and the dozens of other lives lost based on stereotypes and overt racism. Before we can really talk about diversity, we have to put aside privilege and accept the current state of affairs. 
before we can really move on to inclusivity. We have to note the systemic failure of America to view people of color in an inclusive nature. Failing to recognize the direct relationship between the pandemic of police murdering black men and how it is just as intertwined with the right white privilege that gets in the way of diversity and inclusion in the legal profession will not only result in a myriad of dead angles here, but will absolutely ensure that the needle does not move forward. And until we see how this is all connected and it is connected directly to what we're all trying to do and what we hope to see as it, was, as it relates to our legal community down the line, um, then we are not going to be the type of community in which we have all spoken about today, even though we have a lot of efforts and we have a lot of um, really, 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 really important things going on in our community and um, really brilliant, um, you know, revolutionary things going on in our community. community. Um, but again, when, when we treat any marginalized group as just a marginalized group, as their stereotypical marginalized group, right? Here's the women, here's the black and brown people, here's the older um, you know, attorneys, here's the younger attorneys, and not look at them as individuals, right? Then we're going to get into trouble time and time and time again. And we're going to see what happened in 2008, 2009. And we're going to um, see a loss of diversity and inclusion and law firms telling me that they can't afford to pay their memberships this year or sponsor our um, summit this year because they're cutting diversity and inclusivity efforts when they need to be doing the opposite because it's a way to show their commitment to the larger issues as it relates to race and racism in America. Ask another question if that doesn't make sense. Well, actually, I'm going to follow up on that um, uh, just, a, just to get a little bit more specific because with um, modern lawyers, even though any um, lawyer can do it, a lot of um, modern lawyers right now are solo practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, you know, hiring diversely isn't really an option when you're solo. So sure. um, what specific steps can solo attorneys um, do at this point to support um, in, uh, inclusiveness and diversity? Well, first of all, you can be an ally. It's not, that is not something that is difficult. It does take effort. That doesn't mean that you have to participate in the protests. Um, it does mean that you have to have diversity and inclusivity be one of your values. So that means that you join organizations like CLI who promote diversity and inclusivity and we have reduced rates for solo practitioners and we're your go-to for diversity and inclusivity. And we are um, the leaders in Denver in that area. So that would be one um, practice tip that I would say. And I would truly say that this is the first time I've had many conversations with my colleagues who are also people of color where um, allies have actually had a conversation with me and apologized for what is going on. And I um, believe that is directly because of the millennials. <laughs> Even though I've talked about millennials before, I'm not gonna say that I haven't. Um, but I believe that that is, it, you know, that is um, a value that they absolutely hold is understanding the connection between 
who they are and, you know, the sort of historical state of America and the role of their ancestors, although it's 100, 200, 300 years removed. Um, so, yes, being an ally, you can become part of a group like CLI. Um, you can also not only support the organizations, but you run into people of color every day. And when you run into that person of color, you can check in on them and you can ask them how things are going and how they're feeling and how they're wearing during this time. You can absolutely look to the um, camp program as a place where you can go and get support and also get other ideas as to how to be allies. Um, you can call yourself an ally. You know, you don't have to do 10,000 things to be an ally. You can simply call yourself an ally and Google what does it mean to be an ally. And all of these things we've been talking about, we've been talking about being your authentic self. And you can authentically be an ally. And that's sort of what I would say that you can do as a solo practitioner. Is that helpful? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Having those um, very specific steps. Um, is always invaluable, um, at least for me, I just need to have things, I like to have a roadmap, and so. Absolutely, we're lawyers, we all want roadmaps, and you can call me and we can talk about it, right? I'm very accessible, that's part of my value as a new CEO, um, I hope many of you know that, <laughs> um, and if you don't, know it now. And there, so I want you to be whoever you are, within this, what I call revolution, because it has to be a revolution. And in order for it to be a revolution, we have to continue talking about it. Um, we have to have chairs of big law, you know, talk about it, send emails about it. We have to, in every leadership position that you all are in, you, you need to send an email about what's going on if you already haven't. We cannot step over it. It is not... Um, it relates directly to the work that we do and, you know, just directly, there's a direct connection. And I would invite you to the piece that I just I actually read from an article that was on my LinkedIn page that I posted about the connection between CLI and George Floyd um, and this idea of us having two pandemics that we're dealing with right now. Um, so I invite you to just be a follower of CLI. You know, we have, um, my marketing person is going to kill me, but we're, we're on Twitter and, um, we, you know, we're active on social media. Um, but if you just go to our website, you know, you can sign up and, and get our newsletter and it doesn't just need to be us, um, either. I would just say, you know, don't step over what's going on in this country um, to your own friends, you know, I mean, a lot of allies are deeply, deeply, deeply struck and hurt and, you know, have been in tears for weeks about this, um, also. So I'm certainly not saying that people of color are the only ones who have, um, been deeply hurt by all that has happened either. Well, in terms of uh, next steps and how we get to these amazing visions that y'all are sharing, let's turn to another panelist and share your steps. Eric, what do you see as um, steps that we can start building today to get to our legal community of tomorrow? Thank you, Erica. Uh, happy to do it. Boy, there are so many steps that we could take. I think Sarah hit on 
them very well. One thing that, that I, I want to say, and it's, it's a cliche, but it's true. Those of us who work either in or around the legal profession occupy a very privileged space in this society. But with that privilege comes responsibility to make a difference in our community. And for some of us, that's going to translate into careers in civil rights, representing the communities that have been historically trampled in our society. So for some of us, it's gonna be our everyday day job. Not everyone is gonna choose that path, but there is still much that we can do. I had the privilege of being one of the founding board members of CLI, and um, I was sort of punching above my weight at the time to even be on, be able to be on the board. But um, it was an exciting thing to be a part of uh, getting CLI and its predecessor organization off the ground. And one of the things that we talked about back then, and I, I suspect CLI still discusses, is embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion into every single thing that we do. Right? I mean, all of us have a day job, and all of us have a day job that requires policies, practices, procedures, ways of getting things done. We should all take a step back frequently and ask ourselves, do those policies, procedures, processes, et cetera, are we constantly thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion at every turn? Are we constantly lifting up members of historically marginalized communities? Um, we're going to do that in our staff meeting today, for example. We're gonna rip apart our processes and figure out where are our blind spots? What are we missing? Who are we leaving out? We have well-meaning people, but all of us have blind spots and we need to set aside time to work on recognizing those and addressing those. So I think it starts there in our everyday workplace. Um, I think it also starts at home with our family and friends and how we talk to each other. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for that message. Um, Justice Marquez, the, the same question directed to you. How can we start building this legal community that we all want so desperately? What is the roadmap in front of us? I would echo all the wonderful steps that have already been mentioned by my fellow panelists. Um, I guess I would say, with respect to current events, and if you want to be an ally, I would start with educating yourself. And a great deal of that education is about listening. It's about listening to the painful feelings that people are experiencing. It's about hearing those words. It's not about jumping in and saying, I have the solution, but it's about listening first and hearing what people have to say. Um, and these, these are hard conversations. Uh, you know, we're having them in the judiciary as well. I would say show up and get connected. Uh, take advantage, leverage all this wonderful new technology and connect with somebody you might not have connected with before because of physical distance. Physical distance is not a barrier anymore, so don't let it be. I would say take time to reflect on for what for you what has been positive about this pandemic uh, from a well-being perspective, from a regaining control over your time and schedule, 
perspective and use this as inspiration to make permanent changes in your own practice and in your own life. For me, it has been about fundamentally prioritizing sleep, nutrition, exercise, meditation in ways that I just didn't have time to do before. Um, and now in the last three months, I have made them a core part of my daily existence. And it has been profound, that impact. Um, and then the last thing I would say about being, and I'll circle back to being an ally, uh, one very specific thing that uh, solo practitioners can do is sign up to be a mentor either with camp or with a program like Law School Yes We Can, which is a wonderful program, pipeline program started by Judge Arguello that is focused on uh, disadvantaged students who are coming through college. And it's a mentor team experience where they bring a, a law student, a sort of junior attorney, and then someone who's a little bit more experienced. And that trio of mentors grabs that kid as a freshman in college and carries them all the way through the four years of school to get them ready to take the LSAT and to enter law school. And I will say I've done a ton of mentoring in my 25 year career. And this Law School Yes We Can program has been by far the most richly rewarding mentorship experience I've ever had. Thank you, Justice Marquez. I, I really appreciate that concrete way that we can make a difference and be an ally and get involved. Um, and I'm going to yes. adopt you as my mentor after today, just so you know. <laughs> you have a lot of new mentees now. Okay, great. Uh, Jessica, I wanted to throw it over to you because I know that as the president-elect of the CBA community is something that you are focusing on very keenly. And so I wanted to hear from you, you know, how can we start building this community today moving forward? Yeah, I think I mentioned to you, I'm actually working on my first president's message for the Colorado lawyer and have been for a few weeks. Um, and so it was just a happy coincidence, really, when you asked me to join this panel today, that the topic was so aligned with what I've been thinking about, which is that um, as lawyers, we need to lead and the bar needs to lead um, in terms of really thinking about, you know, what do we want to take from this pandemic and hopefully continue? What are some of those silver linings? And we know there's been a lot of challenges as a result of it, but what can we take from this moment and carry forward? My theme for this coming year is lawyers as leaders. Um, and I think we can lead by example and offer leadership training that embodies and espouses the values and goals that we've all been discussing today. Um, as mentioned, I believe all lawyers from the newest to the most experienced can and should lead. And now more than ever, we need lawyers to step up and serve as leaders in the wake of these two pandemics, as Sarah described it. Um, as some of our state pro bono coordinators have suggested, given all the legal issues the pandemic has caused and will cause, lawyers may be one of the next set of heroes on the front line. We can also be leaders in the fight for racial equality as noted to fulfill that promise of equal justice for all. In addition, our communities would benefit from lawyers serving as leaders of local government since the importance of good political leadership at all levels has never been more apparent. Uh, we also need lawyers leading the way with regard to diversity and inclusion in the workplace so we don't undermine recent progress, which did occur in the wake of the Great Recession, uh, as Sarah described it, and could occur again. So there are just so many ways in which lawyers can and are needed to lead. Uh, but we also need to equip lawyers to serve as leaders. As Stanford law professor Deborah Rode points out in her book, which 
is called lawyers as leaders. I only discovered it after adopting this theme, but she notes that although attorneys sit at the helm of an array of businesses, law firms, nonprofits, and governmental organizations, our profession does little to prepare lawyers to lead. Uh, but the bar is uniquely positioned in that regard. It does have leadership programs. It has camp. It has, you know, so many offerings. And I'd like to really focus on equipping young, young and experienced lawyers to be leaders uh, so that we can emerge from these crises or pandemics a much stronger legal community going forward. Thank you, Jessica. And we're all excited to read your inaugural article in the Colorado Lawyer and appreciate your vision for what we can be as a community. I, I wanted to give Sarah the opportunity for the, the last word um, on how we start building our ideal legal community today. Sure, thank you. Um, I think that this is, this is such an important question. I think that when we are well, just as Justice Marquez was talking about, and when we are vulnerable with each other as lawyers, we can really make anything happen. When we are willing to sit down and have discussions like this, thank you, JP, and thank you, Erica, for providing this container. Um, when we are willing to really sit down and listen to each other, even if we don't fully understand one another's point and our perspective, when we are willing to be open to the various different things that we can tackle onto our schedule while maintaining our own wellness and our own vulnerability and our own authenticity. That's the most important piece in then being able to give outward, right? And so I would say, let's continue that process that Justice Marquez spoke about and then let's dive right in. Um, CLI will be leading a town hall meeting. We don't have an exact date. I would ask that um, it's going to be early next week. I would ask that somehow you get a hold of your listeners and let them know about it. Um, otherwise, I would um, obviously tell you what the date is right now. And the purpose and mission of that town hall meeting is for us to be able to gather and really start processing the recent events and come together and listen to each other and figure out what it is that we want to do, what, you know, how we can do it. And it's probably just going to be the, you know, part one or the first town hall meeting where at least we can um, list out the questions that need to be answered, right? We might not solve everything in this initial town hall meeting, but at least we'll be sitting down in a forum similar to this, where it's a safe container where we can have uh, the conversations. And I just really give both of you um, props for um, having the courage to put on this podcast and to not step over everything that's going on in the country today. It is very easy to step over it. I mean, really easy. It's easier and for both of you um, to lead by not doing so is crucial. And um, I am very certain that your listeners will appreciate that and see that. Um, well, speaking of leadership, I um, wanted to add one more opportunity out there, which is the Cobalt um, Colorado Bar Association Leadership Training Program. Um, so you can uh, become a future leader and um, put all these uh, wonderful visions into action for us in the future. 
Yes, I think that's a, a great spot to end. And I just wanted to thank all of our panelists today. Um, if the four of you are any, any indication, our legal community has a very bright future. All four of you have an enthusiasm, but also a willingness to do the hard work of creating a more diverse, more inclusive, more vibrant legal community. So thank you so much for spending so much time with us today and, and giving your heartfelt uh, perspectives and advice <clears throat> for where we can go as a community. And I would like to uh, thank our listeners and hope that you have enjoyed this four-part series. Um, if, heaven forbid, you have missed any of them, you can always go to the CBA website um, and check out our podcasts uh, there. And also, as a little teaser for our upcoming uh, podcast, is going to be on technology for the modern lawyer with Lauren Luster and Marty Champagne, who is our incoming president of the Modern Law Practice Initiative. Yes, we're very excited for that. And for anyone who wants to continue this discussion, um, we are happy to connect you with any of these amazing panelists. Feel free to email us, mlpi at cobar.org. Uh, and there's a lot of great resources available on our CBA community page as well. So we hope to continue this conversation and we thank everyone for joining the Modern Law Revolution podcast today.